Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Amanda Adams, a fiber artist and illustrator and founder of Close Call Studio in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Nicole Muller, a visual artist, painter, and assistant director of career development at California College of the Arts in San Francisco, California. We're the co-hosts of Beyond the Studio, a podcast about the work that happens behind the scenes for visual artists and makers, exploring how they're supporting and sustaining themselves in their creative work. Beyond the Studio features candid conversations with artists about their business practices, time management, financial planning, and how they're navigating the unique challenges of making a living creatively. We are excited to be taking over CAA Conversations today as guest hosts to bring you this very special interview with Lauren M. Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. In this episode, we talk with Lauren about the shifts happening in higher education, how art and design colleges need to adapt, what organizations can learn from adopting a mindset similar to that of individual artists, and key questions we should all be asking within the arts at large. We hope you enjoy this interview and consider checking out our podcast, Beyond the Studio, to hear others like it. And thank you again to the College Art Association for allowing us to take over this episode of CAA Conversations. Hello, welcome everybody. We are really excited today to be speaking with Lauren M. Buckman, the fifth president of Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, an international leader in art and design education, as well as the previous president of California College of the Arts and Saybrook University. Buckman also holds a PhD from Stanford University and a BA from the University of Toronto. In addition to this, his background includes theater director and nonprofit consulting, and he is the host of Change Lab podcast. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Delighted to be here. Thank you. And for a little bit of context, we are recording this towards the end of 2020, where we are seeing huge shifts in the landscape of higher education and within the worlds of art and design education in particular. So we are really looking forward to speaking with Lauren about his perspective as someone who is helping to lead an arts institution through these shifts as we're in this really unique moment. But I would love to just start off by talking a little bit first about your own background in art and how that evolved into arts administration. Um, So I wondered if you would be able to um, give us a little bit of an overview of your own background um, in theater and then how that transitioned into working with nonprofits. Um, Right. So my background is in theater um, and I studied theater as as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto and then went on to get my PhD at Stanford in the theater department there. What's interesting about that particular program when I uh, attended is that it was a uh, they called it a scholar director program. So, you know, there was the PhD part of it, which was certainly scholarly. The scholarly part of it is in dramatic literature and and, uh, theater history and and uh, theory and criticism and that kind of thing. But there was also very deliberately a, a practical side of it in which um, you know the work that you did was as a theater director, the, the, the education and training was in directing. And the basic philosophy was you know, w- w- what you do as a practicing artist informs your scholarship and what you do as a scholar can inform your, your work in the theater um, in all kinds of interesting ways. And I cite that only because you know, my work in schools like uh, CCA and Art Center echo that kind of thing and a kind of commitment in arts education to ensure that there is both a, a life in the studio and a life of the mind and how mutually nourishing those endeavors are. 
And from uh, Stanford, I joined the uh, drama department faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, and I was a faculty there for, for 10 years. Stumbled into being chair of the department at one point and then was recruited to CCA as the provost. It was an interesting moment for me, of course, because I had tenure at this great university with these amazing students, and it was kind of wonderful to be present and, and involved that way. But there was something irresistible about going to uh, an institution like CCA that was entirely about the education of creative people. And uh, given the fact that I had tenure, I actually could just take, take a, a leave and uh, explore it and uh, not have to give up my tenure, just to uh, take a leave without pay kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it was, I might have been maybe six weeks at CCA, and I knew that that was the right place for me. Um, it was just so incredibly wonderful to be in a place that was all about the education of creative people. There was all, it was also a bit of a tricky time at University of California at that time. We were, it was the late 80s, early 90s. There were a lot of cuts at that particular point. Art departments were getting hit pretty hard. And so I had to spend a lot of my time trying to justify the virtues of uh, creative education uh, in the research university. And here I found myself at a place that was all about that. And that was exciting and energizing for me. And I, I quite loved it. Interestingly, I, the president who had hired me at CCA, after only about six months, um, left and actually went to Otis. And um, the trustees were without a president, and so they looked at this provost who had just kind of stumbled onto their campus and said, we need you to be the interim president. And I joined the CFO at that time, and we kind of ran the school while they did the search, and then they ended up actually appointing me as president of CCA. I had no great ambitions to be a college president as I was growing up, like, you know, maybe a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist or something like that, but <laughs> never thought about being a, being a college president. And uh, quickly d discovered, as I did when I was chair of the department at Berkeley, that, that being a theater director is the greatest preparation to be a college president that I could ever imagine, that it was really the same work. It was drawing from me the same kind of creative impulses. It was really about building community, about allowing communities to thrive, and about sort of leading with a sense of creativity to build ultimately into a kind of an essential moment in the case of the theater between a spectator and an actor, and in the case of uh, a great school like CCA between a faculty member and a student or a student and a student or whatever the key learning moment was and enabling that and making it making it work. And so my theater life has manifested as being a college president um, for the next, uh, you know, 25 years or so. And that's that's kind of been the, the journey. Um, I, I had I was at CCA for, for a while. And as you point out, I was also at, at a really interesting uh, school called Saybrook University, which was all about humanistic psychology. And uh, again, the common denominator there was that they were interested in the scholar practitioner, this time the clinical practitioner and the and scholarship and research. Um, and then, of course, uh, Art Center um, has its own kind of version of that as well. So it's been a wonderful journey. Amazing. I could have never predicted this career. Yeah, it's interesting. In some ways, your um, story seems to mimic the paths of a lot of creators and a lot of artists that we speak to, which is something that, you know, really evolves as you go along. And there's never really a defined, you know, point B that you're working towards in the future, but it's something that really seems to kind of unfold as you move closer towards it. And 
you touched on this a little bit already, but um, something that sort of funnels down um, to the ways that even within career development, we work with students is thinking about those transferable skills. So the types of skills that you are developing within the studio and being able to apply those to your own creative career or certainly outside of your own discipline. And so I'm a little curious to hear more about what were some of the larger shifts that you were seeing at the time um, stepping into an art and design kind of college and, and you know, working as the provost uh, for the first time. You mentioned being really inspired by the creativity, but whether in terms of the way that the, you know, a, a smaller art and design school functions, uh, like what were some of the main um, differences that you were noticing when you first arrived? At, at CCA particularly, you mean? Sure. Um, or, you know, since you've been at Art Center and uh, maybe have had some time to uh, reflect on both of those experiences, um, the shift towards working within an art and design school specifically. Well, I think that the it's a really interesting question to kind of reflect on that because at CCA in particular, we were really trying to find a way to get at a kind of central academic purpose to find, you know, to really sort of grapple with the fundamental mission of what it meant for us to be educating artists and designers and to make sure that we were able to build the resources and the infrastructure to make it happen. And at that time, you know, the college had been stabilized and there was some focus on enrollment management. All these schools are, in my mind, perilously dependent on tuition. Um, And so there was a need to explore other disciplines. There was a need to grow into other areas. There was a need to, and a a call to leverage the creative community of the Bay Area, and particularly of the the design community in San Francisco. And we, we kind of put together, which at the time, a very audacious plan of expansion in San Francisco and of purchasing a building. And we spent, oh, two or three years looking for that right building and finally landed on a, uh, you know, that Greyhound maintenance facility uh, south of Market and, and built that out with the idea that if we were able to... Um, We needed to increase the space. We needed to build the infrastructure that would allow us to reach into new disciplines, to be able to recruit a more diverse student body, to be able to build the uh, financial strength of the institution, to be able to realize the mission. And um, it was this beautiful plan at at that time that it wasn't empire building in any stretch, by any stretch of the imagination. It really was the idea that we need the space, we need to develop the space we need to find the way in which we can realize all these dreams and ambitions. And that was a huge point of focus for us um, and, and growing the student body. And as you know, CCA has grown considerably over the years in all kinds of really significant ways. And it, it was, again, audacious, but it worked. And there were a lot of incredibly generous people philanthropically who gave to our capital campaign and allowed us to purchase that building, which, as you know, now has, has I mean, that whole South of Market area has changed so radically over the years and really set the, uh, the institution uh, forward in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, we were having conversations at the time about 
issues of social impact, we were having conversations at the time, certainly about diversity, but they were we were asking very different kinds of questions. And I even think it was called like multiculturalism at the at, at the time. It was a it was a much earlier phase of the conversation. And so to answer your question, if you fast forward to the kinds of issues we're dealing with now, what diversity, equity, and inclusion really means, how we need to wrestle with the serious issues uh, uh, that, that we're all, all, all these schools are facing in terms of how we educate, who has access to the education, how we shape that education, how we build our curriculum that is expansive and inclusive and not narrow and, and, and uh, directed in very particular kinds of ways. Those kinds of questions were starting at the time, but they weren't nearly so pronounced, nor, nor were they n- nearly so well understood or precise as they are now. There, and there wasn't, I don't think there was the urgency either at the time. Certainly there wasn't even the urgency a, a year ago that, th- that we're facing today, but it was still, it was still at a very early phase. And yet the same kind of challenge about the economics and the financial strength of these institutions is still entirely relevant. Art Center, like CCA and like so many ACAD schools, remains tuition dependent. And that structure I don't think can continue. The idea that, you know, tuition gets raised every year and, and you know, we go out and hustle and try to raise philanthropically uh, more and more scholarships and most seriously, students go out and they have to borrow more money. It's just not a sustainable structure. And so we're facing a similar kind of challenge that we need to attend to the economics and the financial structure of these institutions. And I want to kind of emphasize, if we're really serious about access and affordability, if we're really serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that economic structure has to change. It cannot continue because as things get more expensive and as it becomes more and more, and as we continue to be tuition dependent, I think the student body will continue to narrow instead of expand and go against the very grain of what it is that we're trying to do. Yes, I think this brings up a number of additional questions. And I guess two of them are related to what what you're talking about, which is the larger um, business model within higher ed. And then on the sort of reverse side of that, I'm thinking also about um, at the individual level, you know, ways that artists are having to, you know, reevaluate their their own creative careers and business models uh, in support of their work. But I guess just to start with, maybe a, a kind of a bolder question would be if schools are to begin moving away from this um, tuition-dependent model, what, what do you see as the alternatives? Great question. And I think we have to begin to explore that. And we're certainly doing that at Art Center. You know, we have a project that we're doing at Art Center called The Third Horizon. It's an, interestingly a, a model that I read about a couple of years ago called The Three Horizons of Innovation. It was a McKinsey model. And basically they say a business kind of operates in a kind of fundamental way. And that's the first horizon. And then you can create all kinds of improvements to that model, which is a second horizon. And so we've been working on a number of strategic plans at Art Center, really trying to improve what what we were delivering, but with that same fundamental model, tuition dependent, et cetera. And the third horizon is really a complete disruption of that. It's a complete creative kind of 
you have to rethink the whole thing in a, be, to be able to, to start it. And so how do you wrestle with those kinds of issues? How do you find and think about the economics and the business model in a different kind of way? How do you understand revenue that's not only from this source? How do you understand different student audiences? How do you understand different ways of reaching out? How does technology work? How does online work? How do we really take all those very complex issues and understand that we have to reinvent, we have to innovate a different kind of model. Um, if we're serious about the sustainability of these institutions, and certainly, as I was saying earlier, if we're serious about access and affordability. So what the particulars are at this point, we are playing and we are experimenting and we are trying to shape it like you do in your art. Like we're trying to, it's a, a, a phrase that I've written about and I call, we have to make to know, we have to get in there, we have to enter uncertainty, we have to see that uncertainty as a creative space, and we need to begin to engage and understand it and, and build it. And we're very seriously focusing on those issues. What they will be, I know not at this moment, but there's a lot of exciting conversations going on. And I think a lot of institutions are working similarly uh, to that end as well, institutions that you too would be very familiar with. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about because I think one of the one of the challenges or differences that we've even found, you know, working on the podcast or working in our own kind of individual creative practices with artists and then working within a larger organization are just these challenges that you run into as you begin to scale up and you're working within a larger organization that has a lot more moving pieces and um, it seems like, you know, change can be a little bit slower moving within those um, where there are just, you know, many more moving pieces than, for example, if Amanda and I want to make a change with the podcast, it's just a matter of the two of us getting together and deciding we're going to do it. And so, you know, there's a, a speed at which we're able to move that is maybe a little bit different when you um, start to scale up. And so I'm curious to hear, and I know that we're just in the midst of all of these, all of these conversations and, and transitions, but you've brought up a number of, um, you know, what we've been seeing. And so um, I thought it would be worth uh, just addressing more in depth the impact that this year that COVID has had on um, higher ed and the arts at large, um, especially when we're in this moment of being asked to think, you know, short term, how we're responding to all these crises, but also long term to really rethink the model of higher education in general. And, you know, at a time when the value of a virtual experience in, in our in design school is, you know, being being challenged, and there are a lot of questions to work through. And so it really seems like COVID has prompted this acceleration or maybe a forced confrontation of a lot of these structural issues within the arts at large, whether that be the business model of higher ed or issues of race and inequity within arts institutions, the adoption of digital technologies. Um, so all of these things, it really seems, have come to the forefront. And we've been having you know a lot of conversations with artists about this, but I'm really curious um, to hear more from your perspective, how would you describe some of these larger shifts that we're seeing happening? Maybe what are some of the biggest challenges that you feel we're facing in the arts and um, where might there be opportunities to reimagine? I think implied in your question is, some, is, is a good deal of my response. And that is that this moment has created an urgency and a kind of pressure that has um, accelerated change in really interesting and significant ways. I don't want to sugarcoat this moment in any way, shape, or form. It's been exceedingly difficult in so many ways. But there also have been a 
number of um, important issues and questions and decisions and choices and innovations that have come from it that I think we need to recognize and that we need to learn from and to leverage this moment as a, as a, as a kind of learning. I think two things I would say uh, preliminarily. One is just as a kind of life issue, uh, it's not always, you know, and I know you've, you've heard this before, this is far from original, but it's not, it's not so much what happens to you, it's how you respond. And so kind of being operating in that particular kind of way uh, as an institution and thinking as a community is important. How are we going to respond as a community and how are we going to respond creatively? And implied in that too is a kind of interesting uh, kind of meta lesson about how we as creative people respond to problems and how we pull together to solve those problems and to create solutions. And so much of what we teach at schools like Art Center has so much to do with that. And therefore, here we are facing a problem. And how is the institution going to respond creatively, not just to the pandemic, but to the other issues that you raised as well? And so I think it's incumbent upon the institution itself to to kind of practice what it what it teaches um, and to and to be creative in its response. I think the pandemic itself has certainly accelerated how online learning can happen, um, when it works, when it doesn't, what are the issues that are involved with it, how we can kind of make sure that we are and continue to engage students creatively. It is an access issue. There, there are some students who are much more comfortable in, in that environment than others. But I think the, the I'll say a couple of things. One is um, it certainly pointed out certain kinds of economic disparities that we had to pay attention to and make sure that we pass on um, and we are able to support our students who don't have the qu- equipment or the internet bandwidth or whatever it is to be able to work in that particular context. And we have um, raised a lot of philanthropic funds and we've put a lot of resources behind that to ensure that we can bring that kind of uh, the, the technology itself to some point of equity. But I would also say that the challenge of the online environment is, um, I, think you, I think, let me put it this way, we get in trouble when we try to reproduce face-to-face learning in an online environment. I, I don't think fundamentally that's the challenge, meaning if, if we don't find what's unique to a virtual environment, I think we'll get ourselves in trouble. Social media didn't replace the dinner party, right? I mean, it, it, it was a way for people to engage that was unique to that environment. And I think we need to think similarly about how education can operate optimally within that environment as opposed to trying to reproduce something else that we're used to uh, in the in-person environment. And so, you know, at Art Center, we, we've done um, a variety of different things, and I'm sure... Uh, MICA has and CCA has and a lot of ACAD schools have to try to be responsive, to find out how people can learn optimally, how we can um, figure out how to continue the the making process, how we can find ways for even if students don't have access onto campus, how we can create, we've, we've created certain kinds of service bureaus, we've created where students can send in files or they can work with uh, essential staff that are safely on campus and make things and then pick them up by the curbside. We have a whole project called Studio in a Box, which um, is sent to our faculty in which they have uh, different uh, tools and different lighting and different ways to do demonstrations that they wouldn't normally have for students and to engage them in that kind of way. 
And then the, the other thing that I think is really interesting, too, of some of the innovations that or some of the ideas that we've had that we've tried to press with is that we, um, for me, I think that the greatest challenge to, uh, or one of the great challenges of online learning is the isolation and loneliness that you experience, the lack of a sense of community and connection with others, the chance meeting in the hallway, the important moment that you could have never scripted. It happens because there's a context for it to happen when you're together and We've all been there, that moment when you just, it, it just, it's, it, it, it's like that sheer accident when suddenly something goes off because of a certain event or you bumped into somebody or you had a conversation or you were by the water cooler or whatever the case is. And so I, I, my fear about online education is that there is a, that the isolation associated with it compromises learning. And so one of the ways in which we try to address that, and we're really building this out, is we feel like we want to bring Art Center to our students. And so we've built these hubs and we started with our international students who we were particularly concerned about as being isolated and, and, and far away, not able to come and all of the complications that, are, that go on with student visas right now. And we built hubs in Beijing and in Shanghai and in Seoul where we have concentrations of students. And just to uh, try to safely build community for them where we built, we created some maker spaces, we did seminars, we have community events. We are, in other words, trying to bring Art Center the, to them, trying to create community so we can mitigate against that sense of isolation and loneliness that can so seriously, again, affect or impact compromise the experience that our students have. And that's been incredibly successful. And now we want to do it domestically too in certain in certain areas and certain cities and bring students together as again as much as we can. So those are just some examples of ways in which we have tried to respond to the particular moment. But as you point out, the really the the compelling, fascinating question going forward is so what does this all mean for the future? We have spent all this time in the last 11 years that I've been at Art Center building and developing facilities and really wanting to create the best environment possible for the education we offer. And now we're facing a different kind of moment and we're thinking in different ways. And so post-pandemically, where will this go and, and how do, do we tie in this issue I was talking about earlier about who gets to have an Art Center education? How do we offer it? What are the venues? What are our approaches? What are the channels? What are the ways in which we can engage people? All of those questions have been prompted by this moment and I think are fantastic. And I think are gonna, you, you take that and the third horizon issues that I was talking about before and I, I see a whole new mixture of issues and different kinds of conversations that we can go forward with as we, as we look at the future of art education. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about what a sort of decentralized arts education would look like that's not so rooted in a particular location. And you've been kind of bringing this up um, already, and I, I'm really interested to hear more, too, um, about, I guess, this connection between you know, arts institutions and um, the the process of of individual artists is really interesting, and you know that's one that often is rooted in in inquiry and um, or it's a, an inquiry driven process. And so, something I felt is there seems to be a real pressure to come up with answers 
um, in response to the many short-term crises and, and challenges we're facing. And a real concern that I have is whether we're really asking the right questions. And so I'm interested um, because you've been, you know, bringing up a number of questions already. Um, what what are some of those larger questions that you're asking yourself during this time? Um, that you feel that that higher education should be asking, um, or maybe, you know, in particular at Art Center, um, maybe the role of location being one, but... Well, I can tell you, Nicole, that the I can give you a list of some of the pressing questions that I'm wrestling with. I prefer to say that, that we're trying to address more than answer, um, because I think there's a process that is involved here. But certainly the really critical and important one is the one I've raised several times so far in this conversation, that is who has access and who can afford this education? And how do we think about that? Who is teaching this? And how are we recruiting faculty? How are we recruiting administration? How do we understand what inclusivity and equity really means in a diverse environment that we are trying to create? and how that needs to change and the ways in which that needs to change. And again, how, that, how the fundamental system, because it, if it, it is a systemic issue and how we address that systemic issue creatively is, 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 is critical. I think we need to ask questions about our curriculum and the narrowness of that curriculum and how we want it to be more expansive and understand it. And therefore, again, questions about who is teaching and how we, and who is posing the questions to the institution becomes incredibly important as well. I think we have to ask questions about something as fundamental as critique, right? That, that kind of reliable jewel in the creative education process, critique. But how is, is critique, if we want to deconstruct critique and really understand what's behind it and how it functions and who's responding and the context in which that response happens and the, the, the kind of demands of, of critique, which, you know, the way I was raised, that was, so, that was such a critical and, 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 and vital piece of the learning. But if you ask other questions about who culturally we are, or what, what is the level of cultural imposition in the very structure of critique? Is it, is it for everyone? Should we only rely on it? Who speaks in it? Who is comfortable articulating voice in it? How are we building community, even in the context of that room where the critique is transpiring? These two are essential questions, I think, that arts education has to wrestle with right now. So we're going through this really interesting moment of a kind of, you know, fundamental addressing of questions that, you know, we, we, we didn't really think about a lot before or... Um, were, uh, and, and, and maybe shame on us for not, but that we're not, we, we weren't understanding the multiple dimensions of it, the implications, who was affected, who got to get in the room, how the conversation transpired. So it's, I mean, an amazingly exciting moment in that way, but an uncertain one. And in that uncertainty, there is, as I say, great create, creative opportunity, but also a lot of anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm also interested as it sounds like there are a lot of conversations taking place around reimagining the, 
the structure of higher ed and really at every level, you know, what is what does critique look like? Is that as central a part of the you know art school experience? Um, all of these things that you've brought up, and has there also been a shift? Where where are these conversations happening? I'm wondering, um, and and have there been any changes in that? Um, I guess whether between you know within art center is this you know happening at um, a sort of higher level between directors at various ACAD schools um, are, are more in students being involved in this conversation um, you know has there also been a change in sort of you know where where these questions or conversations are taking place yeah and one of the things I don't want to lose in your question that you just said because it's crucial and we need to do it much more is the students need to be deeply involved in this conversation absolutely right it is a great error for us to not sufficiently engage with the students themselves in these conversations. So that has to be an important part. It's an important part, certainly, of what we're trying to do at Art Center. But on the larger, on a larger scale, we need to pay attention to it as well. Which, which brings me just to talk about, you know, ACAD as an association, and that really is a context for a lot of these conversations. And we are a, a group of um, institutions that are. I think all wrestling with the same kinds of issues that I was raising today in different ways and with different points of focus, I suppose, but we really are trying to understand it. And we have um, had um, wonderful symposia uh, through ACAD on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. Um, There's been an amazing, with credit to my colleagues, uh, there's been this amazing fellowship program that's been developed to um, ensure that we we are able to give opportunity for teaching and faculty positions to uh, BIPOC graduates of the various ACAD schools. And through this fellowship program that we've developed, there's now a leadership institute that we're working on as well, um, where people function uh, as mentors to try to help a more diverse group of people to anticipate their own uh, assumption of leadership going forward in these schools as well, which would make a huge difference to these conversations. So on that level, um, I think ACAD is doing a remarkably good job in furthering the conversation and in also in opening up uh, opportunity. Otherwise, I'm, I, I just think that the kinds of things that I've been talking about today that are happening at Art Center are also happening in really wonderful and imaginative ways on so many of the ACAD campuses across the country. And we are able through through our own friendships and our associations in various ways to share the conversations as much as possible to create a kind of cross-conversation among institutions as well, um, recognizing that each institution really is different, facing different challenges or different points of, of its development. But the fundamentals, I think, are are happening across uh, ACAD. The only other thing I would add, and I think this was also implied in your question too, is that it's an issue about higher education. And it's a, a really exciting moment about what higher ed is, is facing right now and the various challenges that higher ed is facing right now in, the, in, in this country. And again, it has a lot to do with who can come. It has a lot to do with an attitude that many students are bringing about uh, a kind of ROI, a return on investment of their, is college worth it, right? I mean, that's a conversation that's been going on for a good decade now. I don't know if you saw the um, the documentary Ivory Tower, but I actually showed that to my board of trustees because it, it really put out re- fascinating questions about 
about higher ed, about its cost, about its priorities, about its sensibilities, about what it was tr- doing, about the attitude of students toward it, about the, the extent to which um, you know college is worth it, and that's that's a that's a profound question: Is college worth it? Is it you know? And 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 is it? And it's a very individual and very personal question that everybody needs to address. And you can think about it on ROI and financial terms, but you also need to think about a much larger picture about who you are and what education means to you, what education means to your growth, what the the meaning it can bring to your life during your time at college, but also in terms of the ways in which you move through your own world and time after you graduate, how you think about it, where your critical sensibilities exist, how you draw on the strength of your education and the great teachers you have, how you metabolize that to move forward, who you are. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways. And college is one way to find some of that for some people, but it doesn't have to be for everyone. And so those questions exist, I think, in really interesting ways as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate the emphasis when talking about how Art Center is addressing some of these questions of student engagement and collaboration. And it seems like there is a real need for us all to sort of step outside the silos of our, you know, our individual experiences and look at, you know, the ways that we can collaborate across sectors. And it makes me think a lot about some of the earlier conversations we've had on the podcast, too, related to mutual aid efforts and ways that individual artists are sort of banding together in response to the pandemic to, you know, create their own kind of micro economies, or even within another kind of nonprofit example, you know, grant making organizations like Artist Relief, where at number of different arts nonprofits got together to kind of pool resources and expand, you know, the funds they were able to offer. And so, so I was interested to hear, you know, what that might look like within um, higher ed and, you know, what kinds of kind of conversations are taking place. You know, uh, it reminds me of, I, I meant to say earlier to your really interesting question about how things have evolved over the time of my involvement in, in um, art and design education. And one of the um, really interesting developments at a place like Art Center, though I know it's true elsewhere, is, you know, Art Center had a very strong and continues to have a very strong connection with industry and with sponsored projects and with corporations coming in and bringing design challenges to students and for students spending a whole term on in their interaction with with corporations, with executives of that corporation. And it was really up to the minute, current, really exciting learning. But you know, 14, 15 years ago, Art Center also became the first independent art design school that got NGO status through United Nations and started this program called Design Matters, which is a, a social impact design program where you took that sensibility of trying to solve a certain kind of brief or challenge from a corporation, but instead made it about social impact, made it about community. And the deep meaning that came from the experiences that our students have pre-pandemic traveling the world to all kinds of communities and trying to engage with those communities to work with them to understand the situation, not from a privileged perch in Pasadena, but really out in these communities doing this amazing work and bringing their creative imaginations to help helping solve problems for communities in need. And the deep and appreciate the gr- gratitude that came from these communities toward these students. I mean, I had nothing like that. Maybe you, you, you two did, but I had nothing like that experience in my undergraduate life where I had a kind of engagement with community and I was able to see um, in the most meaningful way the impact that I could have in terms of 
that kind of conversation or maybe trying to offer some kind of solution to a certain uh, issue. That kind of work too is uh, to me in incredibly exciting. I credit the, th those who began the Design Matters program. I know social impact design is happening in many ACAT schools now, but that, that didn't exist when I got to CCA in 1992. That, it was a very different, it wasn't that people didn't care about it, but we weren't anywhere near doing that kind of work. Um, and I think that's evolved. And, really important ways, and I think in it are a lot of lessons that we can learn about what makes a meaningful education and, uh, again, how you can educate the whole person in ways that have, is nuanced and, and expansive. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up this topic of professional practices, uh, because this is something that, you know, we care really deeply about. I mentioned earlier that I work in career development at California College of the Arts currently, and, you know, the impetus for starting the podcast was um, to have more transparent conversations with artists about the realities of being a working artist, but also the really unique and innovative ways that artists are building their lives and making sustainable careers. And so I think, you know, things have also shifted in the 10 years since we've been out of art school, but looking to really kind of see a shift from a more, or rather an exclusively practice-based approach to one that more holistically prepares artists for um, sustainable careers. And uh, so I think you've been speaking to that um, through some of these initiatives a little bit already. But again, related to kind of the heart of what um, what Beyond the Studio is all about, I would love to hear your perspective on career development, um, you know, what that looks like within the academic context, um, you know, how, how is that implemented or, or what are some of the ways that, you know, outside of a sort of studio setting, um, you hope to see students engaging with those other aspects of their life? Yeah, I, um, I have to say in this regard, I have learned a lot from Art Center, which uh, really has always been unapologetically about preparing students for a professional life. It wasn't always thus in, in uh, other schools that I've been associated with, um, that somehow that, that was, uh, if, you, if you mix in the, the kind of business element or the career element, uh, too early, you're going to compromise something special about the education that you're trying to offer. And Art Center had, has, a, has a strength that way, again, which way predates me, it goes back to its uh, founding, about what integration with industry means, what integration with, uh, for that matter, for the, with the museum world and the gallery world, and how that gets integrated into the curriculum. And Art Center has always done uh, an amazing job with that and continues to do that. So just having a place that builds connection that way, I think, is really important and can help prepare students. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting too, uh, as well, is to, to what extent does the curriculum, and this is, a, this is a complicated question to me, but to what extent does the curriculum also need to create opportunities for students, uh, train them in business, train them in uh, certain kinds of professional practice areas, and how does one do that? And there's no doubt that that is an incredibly important part of the education of an aspiring artist and designer or designer. But the question becomes how it gets, how it gets woven into their experience while they're in school. And this, is, this becomes a bit, of a, a, a bit of a concern for me personally, because what I see is that we have, with the best intentions, all these things we want our students to have while we're there at school. We want them to have 
a good business education and understand good business principles and good principles of professional practice so that they can go out and be strong that way. We also want them to have a good humanities and science education because we want them to understand how developing their own, the, the, a life of the mind, as I was saying earlier, how developing the, the understanding the history of their discipline and the communities that they're involved in, uh, uh, developing their critical sensibilities, their research skills are always are so important, right? We want them to have uh, experience doing social impact work, and we want them to have experience doing this, and we want them to have experience doing that. And so what do we do? We create requirements. And I'm not convinced that that's the most creative way to build an education. Obviously, education needs some kinds of fundamental requirements. But I think if we think about more a kind of frame, if we let the kind of breeze blow through the experience of our students a little bit more and create situations where they have to confront a business issue or a, or a professional practice issue because we've built a structure in which inevitably they will come upon that naturally as opposed to as a structure that's imposed from above or that they will of necessity on a certain kind of project, integrate with what they're doing and be able to develop the skills and the, the, the research skills and the reading. I think we need to think about educational structure more in terms of frames and less in terms of requirements. And again, I'm not saying, you know, you can, that all requirements need to go away. I'm, I'm not being nearly so, I'm not nearly so uh, broad stroke, but I do think that there are different ways in which we need to build those opportunities. And then with career planning offices, like the one you work in, how are we a continued resource to our students as well after they graduate? How do we understand that after we hand them that diploma, we're still an important resource, an important su support mechanism for, for our students as they navigate their way through their lives and their careers as artists and designers? Yeah, I'm so curious about what maybe newer, unique challenges because of 2020 with preparing students for graduating and for entering the world after school. Have you seen, or are you thinking about new ways of preparing them or, or new questions to ask within career development? I don't know if that totally makes sense as a question, but... Yeah, sure, sure it does. But again, I, I hope that ultimately we're creating you know, we're creating a place where it's the creative response to the moment, mm -hmm. much along the lines of what we've been talking about this whole time, right? That becomes yeah. the most important feature in it. And, you know, I've been known to, 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 to say that what we teach, fundamentally what we teach at Art Center is courage. And it's the courage to have voice. It's the courage to be able to find, you know, be innovative. It's the courage to to stretch is the courage to fail and to understand that failure is a stepping stone to a, a kind of success. It's the courage to go, as I said earlier, into places of uncertainty and knowing that making leads to knowing in a fundamental way and that they, that artists and designers know something fundamental about that. It's not, it's not, and rarely is, great vision realized, right? Michelangelo chipping away at the stone until he sets the angel free, right? It's rarely that process. There's a, a making and knowing process that happens, and that requires a kind of courage, that requires a kind of skill, that requires a kind of discipline to find the freedom to go into those kinds of spaces. 
And the institutions that teach them need to go into those very same spaces. They need to do exactly what we're teaching. And so in a way, that's the, hopefully we're, we're, we're passing on that sensibility and giving our students the strength through their education to be able to wrestle with some of these issues in, in, in an optimal, but also in a, in a very deeply meaningful way as well. I just started reading a book called The New Education by Kathy Davidson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, and I'm, I'm only just towards the beginning, so I, I hope I'm not uh, distorting any of uh, her messaging here. But it's been really interesting to read about in the context of this year because she wrote this, in, uh, or this came out in 2017, but really about the, the need for these kinds of structural changes that you're describing and that the sort of more prescriptive or um, disciplinary specialized training model that worked well for most of the 20th century is uh, sort of in need of, you know, a reimagining in favor of something that is more student-centered, that favors active learning, where students are encouraged to make public professional contributions both within and beyond the classroom, and that these are really the skills that are needed in order to navigate um, a world in flux. And it really seems like that's kind of come to, to bear this year where it seems like, you know, maybe art schools are a little bit um, further along and that kind of interdisciplinary thinking and training and the ways that students are really encouraged to, um, to think about these real world applications um, of their work outside of, outside of any particular medium or, you know, outside of the context of a, a studio space. But it seems like that that skill development is really um, critical. And I feel like you've talked about this throughout your own career and you know in the ways that art centers working to prepare students, but um, the emphasis on those transferable skills, um, how are students identifying and then able to apply the skills that they're um, you know learning within their making and within the act of creation to their um, their lives and careers and sort of rebuilding the the world around us. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And uh, as you can see, I very much resonate with the questions she's asking and and what she's trying to get at. Um, I think we're at that moment, and uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to see where it will go. Yeah, and I really I love seeing how you and other institutions are using these concepts that we're talking about so much now, like defunding, decentralizing, dismantling, decolonizing. How can we bring those concepts into institutions and structures to really bring lasting change and and bring that necessary shift and, and make it a better experience for every everyone involved? I think it's important that we ask these questions wherever we can, um, especially if we're in positions of power to be able to make those changes. Absolutely. I think that's uh, that's crucial. And as I, as I suggested, a lot of those changes can happen and they can make progress. But I am fairly convinced at this point that they will not fully transpire until we pay attention to this economic model that we've got going here. You know, I had a on my own podcast a really interesting conversation with a, a scholar and historian by the name of Cedric Johnson at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and mm-hmm. and uh, his his, you know, he I learned so much from studying up on him and reading him, and it the parallel to what I'm saying is that you know he he looks at the world and and particularly the race and racism that exists in our world right now and the injustice that operates right now, and he goes to the deeper core problem of the economics, the class system, 
the, uh, the, the, the poverty that exists uh, and, and understands that that is the fundamental that actually transcends race and that we need mm-hmm. to, you know, get at, we need to, you know, again, it's what we teach. We, what's the real problem you're trying to solve? What's the core issue so that other, uh, we can free up in other ways uh, 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 the, these other injustices and inequities that exist? And uh, again, I think there, it's, there's a parallel in higher education in terms of the, the, the economic model we have and how we're looking at that and how that structure really needs to be reimagined and reexamined so these other things that you're talking about can can happen in the most effective and optimal ways yeah you that brings up another great question too which you know as we've been talking a lot within the context of higher ed and with our end design education you know it has me thinking about some of these larger questions too and we we know that the role of artists and designers is critical um, and yet the support systems don't always seem to be there. You know, I'm just even thinking about the lack of federal funding for the arts, you know, here in the U.S. And so I'm wondering what what are some of the other changes you think that we need to see happening or wh- what are some of those larger issues, maybe even beyond the scope of, of higher ed that we might um, need to see in order to, you know, to see artists and designers more supported once they graduate and... I guess I'll start with that. I have some other questions, but I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what are some of these larger, you know, issues that might be circulating or um, changes we might need to see occurring. There are practical changes, the ones that we are talking about now, the ones that Professor Johnson talks about. There are ways in which we need to be um, astute and focused on those kinds of changes in our society and our world. I will return to what I said earlier, what excites me what artists and designers know is what uncertainty can bring. What artists and designers know is what it means to go into places that are, are unknown and that have great creative possibilities. They understand that engaging and, and making has implications for the way we live, that we don't always need to proceed from some great vision and simply execute against that vision, but that making itself needs to be understood as a, a core process of human life. We don't envision our lives so much as we make them. And we get stuck when we don't feel like the vision is coming through because we're caught in, I think, the wrong structure, the wrong questions, as opposed to what it means to, in the most extreme way, improvise our way through. But improvisation requires discipline. Improvisation requires skill. Improvisation requires frames. Improvisation requires an openness to learning. It requires an accommodation of failure. Improvisation is, you know, a kind of serious way in which we move through, but that we discover as we move through, and that the thing made and the process of making it become one. And I think that understanding, I think that knowledge, I think that experience that artists and designers understand can have incredible ramifications for how we live, how we live spiritually, how we live and function as leaders for that matter. So, so one of the ways to address your question is, well, what about leadership? Is leadership a kind of follow the leader, uh, I have a vision, come with me? Or is it a very different way of thinking about engaging a making? The example I always use is this amazing story of this uh, town in North Holland 15, 16 years ago. It's an intersection in which 
there, it was incredibly dangerous and cars were crashing all the time and bicyclists were being hit and pedestrians were being injured. And the more there were, the more problems that transpired, the more the authorities put up signs. Don't do this, slow down here, don't go this way, don't cross here. In other words, the more they created an authority to try to mitigate things and things just kept getting worse. And then a designer by the name of Monderman came along who had a very different philosophy. And he was fascinated by a crowded skating rink and the fact that skaters rarely bumped into each other, that there was some sort of instinct that people had as they moved through the skating rink in which they really stayed out of each other's way. Or a flock of birds flying or a school of fish and you see them doing this wonderful sort of choreography together and not actually bumping into each other. And what was that? And felt like rather than imposing this kind of authoritarian voice, what we need to do is we need to free it up. And so he took it all away, all of the signs, and rebuilt the intersection as a roundabout. And immediately there were no, there were, the car crashes went to zero. Pedestrians weren't being hit. Bicyclists were free to go through and something else transpired. And what, what the roundabout provided was a place for the best part of it. People naturally did it. The best part of them, of who they were, was, were sort of brought out through that experience and created a much safer environment. To me, that's an amazing metaphor for leadership. I think what we need to do as leaders is build roundabouts for our communities to thrive, as opposed to imposing certain kinds of authoritarian, don't go here, make a requirement there, shift that. I don't think leadership's about that anymore. So that, that too is being questioned and, and I think raises to the surface the kinds of communities that we need to build and, and allow us to create the roundabouts within our institutions that allow our communities to thrive, our students to learn, our faculty to engage. It's a different model, different way of thinking. I love it. That's so wonderful to hear. And I feel like that is a really excellent metaphor for ways that we can approach different things, ways of functioning societally and exactly. being less authoritarian in general. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, I mean, uh, uh, th this this story of, of, of Monderman and, and some others, um, concept I've talked about, I, I've just, I've compl just completed a book that's going to be coming out uh, hopefully next fall, which is all about making and knowing. And, and the reason I bring it up in this context is, it, in answer to your question, it, I think making and knowing and what what artists and designers know um, or understand, the experience they understand, has huge implications for how we live. And I think you know, that, was the, that was Nicole's question. I think we can really understand that there is profound, there's a profound way in which we can understand those processes, not, not just, you know, oh, it's good to be creative, but really uh, actually making, uh, courageously going into places that, we, that are unknown. And Hamilton talks about the power of the unknown. She, she talks about the fact that in her work, what she wants to do is she wants to cultivate a place of not knowing, to resist the kind of pressure that she feels of, well, what are you working on now, Anne? What's going on? And what she told me was, you know, she's written about this, but we had this wonderful kind of meeting in her, this full day of, of conversation in her studio in, in Columbus. But she actually wants to make sure that she cultivates a space of not knowing so she can go into this place and find the discovery and, and allow all parts of her to, it's almost like she's listening with a different part of herself all the time or trying to cultivate parts of herself to, to be able to be responsive 
And then she says to recognize, to recognize what it is she wants to do, which I love it. And I asked her, well, is it, is it, are you responding to the surprise of the moment? And she said, no, I'm recognizing what it is I want to do. She's amazing. She is amazing. I love it. And I know this is a bit of an abrupt segue, but I want to make sure that we talk about your podcast uh, while we're here, um, which you did mention earlier, and we will sh- include a link to that episode uh, in the show notes so people can just go straight to and listen. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, the podcast, the inspiration behind starting it, and kind of what you're learning through it and, and how you're adapting and developing that? Well, as the two of you know, it's like this amazing gift from the gods, these podcasts, right? Because it allows mm-hmm. us to have conversation and it allows us to explore these pressing questions and to hear a lot of different points of view and to bring nuance to what we're facing in our daily lives. And, you know, we can listen to these podcasts while we're exercising or while we're taking a walk or while we're paddling in a canoe for that matter. I mean, whatever it is, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful opportunity to, to be expansive. And I've learned so much. And I don't know about you, but my, my experience with the guests that I've had is they're so generous and so gracious and so open to yes. kind of wrestling with these questions that I'm trying to put forward mm-hmm. to them. And, and you, you sort of fall in love. Like, this, I have such gratitude for what, what, they're, what, what these guests are able to do and their willingness to engage in the way they are. And so I've, I've loved that. The, it came about because, um, because I wanted to have that, a, a context in which we could explore some of the pressing issues that we're facing, uh, uh, art and design, and particularly art education and art center itself. Um, and this was a way in which we wanted to, to see where that would lead and the possibility of bringing multiple points of view to the questions that we were dealing with. And so that, that's how it began. And again, I never expected that I would so love and enjoy and feel so much uh, gratitude for the opportunity to speak with these amazingly smart, thoughtful, sensitive people. And so it's been a fantastic opportunity. And um uh, I've loved it. The fundamental question really had to do with, we call it Change Lab because um, our, our, the, our mission statement at Art Center is learn to create influence change. And we, we, we want people to learn to create with the both double entendre of learning to create, but learning so that they can create, but also the idea that it has consequence and to understand how artists and designers think about the change that they create in the world not something that uh, where the radius of influence is important. Not everybody has to be president of General Motors is what I typically say, but that an individual moment with somebody, a creative engagement, uh, a kind of butterfly effect way of thinking about change can, can be enormously important in all of this too. And so I, I'm often interested in exploring that question with the guests that I have on, on the podcast as well. I know we can definitely relate. Uh, Nicole and I are always talking about how after the conversations, we're just like, I feel like I know that person so well now. I can't Mm -hmm. believe they were so genuine and generous and so willing to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. and talk about mistakes they've made or like difficult experiences they've gone through, share really powerful insights that they've had to learn the hard way and just want to give that knowledge freely. And for listeners listening now, I highly recommend listening to Change Lab if you like the style of conversations we have. Those conversations are also happening there, and the production quality is much better. So, (laughs) 
listen to both. <laughs> right, right. Uh, exactly. But I, I was listening to your podcast earlier, and I was listening to the conversation with Cedric, and it was so incredible and really, I was like jealous because I was like, I wish I was part of this conversation because it's so good. But I'm so grateful that you're recording it, and that's part of why we wanted to start our podcast because we were having conversations with artists and they're so helpful for us and we wanted to be able to share that information with everyone so that we can all grow together and we can all become better together right. so I'm, I'm grateful for your podcast and I'm, I'm glad we're able to talk to thank you, you. And, and I and I for, for yours um, really I think it's wonderful that you're doing it thank you yeah part of what um, I think part of the way we think about podcasting is also one of those methods of building bridges, you know that it allows us to have these really wonderful intimate conversations, but then to open them up and share them with a wider audience and you know related to some of your um, your earlier points about access that you know podcasts are f- free to listen to and distribute, and that you know we felt like that was one way to open up that conversation to artists around the world and so so for us, you know, the podcast became a form of, of building bridges that, you know, maybe we didn't have within our own individual um, studio practices. And I feel like this also relates to the, you know, mission um, we're talking about within higher ed of influencing change and the kind of necessity to um, to see artists hold more more space at the table and to, you know, become involved in, in various sectors and to kind of take that creativity and that ability to uh, to recognize um, nuance and, um, you know, to bring all these creative skill sets into different spaces as we're trying to reimagine the, the world that we live in and um, go through this really fundamental redesign. And so I'm curious to know too, are there other ways? I'm, I'm sure there are many, but, you know, maybe specifically for, for artists that are listening that, you know, you might recommend as a way to to begin building those bridges um i think there's also a question sometimes around um, responsibility i think you know whether at an individual or an institutional level you know who is responsible for for building those bridges um should it should it be coming from the top down is it the responsibility of artists to just you know begin and create their own spaces um you know where can we sort of come together and um how do we start to facilitate those connections and so I would be curious to hear, you know, for anybody that is is getting started, um, or maybe for you know any recent um, graduates, even how how can they begin to um, engage uh, if if they are feeling a little bit isolated in this time, and to start you know building some of those bridges themselves. Well, I think it's it's fundamentally always going to be about finding community, and I think what you're doing and what you're talking about through your podcast and I I love that construct of that you're creating a bridge and I also love the construct obviously that you're creating a certain level of access and in a way you're you are building a community through this work that you're doing and it's a if I may it's a kind of roundabout people can come in and listen and slow down and engage in the way that you know is is important so I think projects like this are really important frankly with all my ambivalence about social media, I actually also believe that that is another kind of opportunity for community with all the qualifiers that you can imagine that I would put in there because it can be a pretty <laughs> horrible process as well or yeah. a very mean place. Um, but mm-hmm. I think there's also opportunity to connect um, by way of social media. I mean, I, 
I'm sure your experience is much more extensive than mine, obviously, in this place. But that, that is another place in which it can happen. And at its best, it's a roundabout for connection. And it's a roundabout for people engaging with the best of themselves as well. And I think, again, that as far as uh, institutions of higher education are concerned with this, or for that matter, museums or galleries or design firms or whatever it is, how are they understanding their role in in education, writ large. And how do we understand that uh, our campuses need to be much larger than the buildings we, in which we've, you know, that we've put our name on, uh, but that there are other ways of interacting there. That It goes back to what we were talking about earlier with respect to experience with industry, with galleries, with museums, with nonprofits, with social, with other, uh, with communities around the world that that, that we conceive of our, our campuses as much larger and therefore bring in aspiring artists and designers as much as we bring in established institutions and that the nuances, the, the uh, texture of the education that we create is, is connected in all kinds of ways and breaks open that sort of ivory tower sensibility. I actually think that the more we do that and build it in these early years, I think it can make a very a big difference to the experience of artists and designers after they graduate too, because they're already in a kind of process and they're already in a kind of community and that that community can, can be there to sustain them and strengthen them and make a difference in their lives. Um, and so I believe we, we just, we need to think that way. I, we need to think about this project of, I mean, you just called it building bridges, but I would say in another way to think about it of building communities. Yeah, thank you so much. Are there any final thoughts that you would want to share um, towards the end of this conversation? I don't think so. It's been really lovely speaking with the <laughs> two of you. Your questions are great and um, it's been a delight. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Um, it's truly been a privilege to speak with you, Lauren, and we are really grateful um, to you for taking the time and um, all of the work that you're engaging in to reimagine the future of higher ed and the, you know, sort of ecosystem um, that artists and designers live in. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of CAA Conversations. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, co-hosts of Beyond the Studio. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can find others like it over on Beyond the Studio podcast. You can listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and our website, beyondthe.studio. Thanks again for listening to this episode of CAA Conversations. 